when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. And late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all of these people. For about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Catch this church. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. Catch this also. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. And they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You can take your seats. ask that you join me for another moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in a posture of dependence. All that we need, you are and you provide. Even as we seek to understand your word this morning, we need your Holy Spirit to help us. And so, Father, it is my prayer that as your word is preached, our understanding of you and your character, your power, the ways that you work in the lives of your people, I pray that our understanding of all of these things would grow, but not just our understanding, Father. I pray that our love and affection for you would grow as a result of what we understand about you. Father, as we witness your power to take little and make it become much, as we witness your multiplying power in the lives of those in this passage, I pray that we'd call to mind areas of our own lives where we should trust and believe that you're able to multiply. And that you're a good God who delights in giving good gifts to your children. So Father, we pray that you would continue to give good gifts. And as we see them, our faith would compound and abound all the more. Grow us in our trust of you. Grow us in our practice, lived out belief in your supernatural power. Grow us in our joy for the ways that we witness that power on a daily basis. Grow us in our joy, Father, for our getting to witness that power through salvation. Father, give us great joy in who you are, what you do, what you're able to do, and all that that means for us. And Father, I also pray that as I attempt to preach toward these ends, that you would use me as a tool of yours. I avail myself to you. I'm in desperate need of your help, God. I stand as one who's fully dependent upon you, needing now the provision of of grace for preaching. Lord, as I seek to bring the little that I've got, I pray that you multiply so that it serves your people well. And may we all leave this place built up and encouraged in the truth of the gospel. God, I pray and ask that if there be any under the sound of my voice, 
who don't yet know you in your power, would you remove the veil from their eyes this morning? Help them to see you and the great grace that you've shown us in Christ. And help them to respond with faith and repentance, Father. We're so grateful that we can pray this with confidence you hear us. And so we do, Father. We pray and I preach for your glory with dependence upon your spirit and in the name of your son. Amen. The oak tree is said to be one of the most impressive and respected plant lives in all of creation. There are many people who admire the oak tree. As a matter of fact, for 19 years now, the oak tree has been recognized as the national tree of America. Uh, This means that what the National Arbor Day Foundation sees when they look at the oak tree uh, with its apparent strength and morale and resistance, with this capability to endure and, and be lasting among many other things, after, be lasting after many things around it has ceased to exist. Uh, this is what they want people to think of when they look at the nation of America. Uh, the oak tree stands as a universally recognized symbol of resilience. Maybe this is why the oak leaf is also the chosen symbol of the United States Armed Forces. If you're ever to meet an American soldier and he has an oak leaf on his collar, this is a symbol to you that the soldier is of supreme ranking and he's to be respected for his contribution to our country's freedom. He's to be respected with similar regard to that which is given to the oak tree. And chances are, whether you realize it at the time or not, you too have likely benefited from the dealings of oak trees. If you ever enjoyed a song with a beat that was produced by the tapping of a Yamaha manufactured drum, then you've been given the pleasure of sound by an oak tree. If you've ever traveled through the mountains in the fall and have taken in the beautiful mixing of oranges and yellows and reds, then you've probably been given the pleasure of sight by an oak tree. If you've ever been outside on a hot day in Southern America, and you found yourself a tree trunk to lean on as the shadows of the branches above cast shadows to cool you off, then you've likely received the pleasure of comfort by an oak tree. I don't think I've got to continue selling you on the use of oak trees, but I do wonder if you've ever paused to think about the origin of an oak tree. You see, oak trees don't start their lives as the grand, universally respected figures that they are. But any oak tree which reaches the point of maturity first began as nothing more than a tiny little acorn. This may be hard to believe for some of us, like like how can this dominant, demanding presence of a tree species all begin with tiny acorns? I mean, oak trees are known for reaching incredible measurements, friends. Like it's not uncommon for one to reach 70 feet in height or or 135 feet in length or nine feet wide around the base. The oak tree is known for having roots that usually go as deep down into the earth's surface as its branches reach high into the sky. And with those deep roots, the oak tree sustains its prominent figure by consuming 50 gallons of water per day. Oak trees are no small garden plants, friends. They grow to be some of the vastest, most notable plants in all of creation. But they each begin with a tiny acorn. And I want to make the suggestion this morning, Pioneer Church, that the acorn, which grows to become an oak tree, 
stands to give a creation-based testimonial about God, that he can take little and make it become much. You see, the God of the universe, friends, has multiplying power in his hands, and he can take what is minimal and make it become maximal. And here's why this is good news for you this morning. I don't know what you might have come here feeling like you're running low on today, but I do know this. The God you serve can take whatever little you have, and if he intends you use it for his glory, he can take that little and see that it becomes much. So he's got multiplying power, and, and he can take the little hope we have and, and see that we become people with great hope in him. When we're running low on necessary wisdom, he can, he's multiplying power that can leave us with the understanding we need. When there's a big undertaking before us and, and our energy is almost spent, God can take the little energy we've got and make it be sufficient. And look, I'm, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but I do believe that even when finances are tight and we want to steward what God has given in a way that pleases him, I think he can take whatever pennies we have and make sure that we're sustained by him. You see, he's a God, friends, with multiplying power, and that power allows him to take what's little and see that it becomes much. So do me a favor before we get into the passage. Let's loosen up, look at your neighbor and tell him, bring whatever little you got. And I'll tell him, and let the Lord make it much. Bring the little you got and let the Lord make it much. When we come to our passage, we find Jesus with this group of apostles and they clearly needed to learn a quick lesson about this. Verse 10 tells us that when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done and then he took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. So what we're seeing at the beginning of this passage is that Jesus' apostles have returned from the ministry assignment. He sent them on in the passage just before them, uh, this one, I told you last week that after his apostles had spent a year and a half merely observing the ministry Jesus was doing, uh, Jesus being the faithful disciple maker that he is, he got to the point of affirming their readiness for ministry. So he commissioned them and, and, and told them to go and minister as he ministered. We saw last week that he sends them out to preach what they'd heard him preach and then to heal like they'd seen him heal. And when he sends them, he tells them that they, when they go, they're to take nothing with them. I also told you this last week. The reason Jesus told them to take nothing with them on their journey was because he wanted to teach them that they all, all they needed for ministry had been provided by God. So they were sent on this ministry assignment back up in verses two through three and were told to take nothing with them. So they had to trust that the Lord would, would put people in their paths to provide them with food and clothing and, and a place to rest at night. They had to rely upon God for all of these things. And so I imagine, friends, that when they come back from this ministry assignment and they're reporting to Jesus all that they've done, interwoven into the very reports they give are testimonies about how God has met their needs and provided for them. See, I imagine they had many stories of, of, of how God had led this friend to open their home for them and this friend to, to provide them with a meal and this friend to wash their clothing, and how they preached of God's kingdom to this person and they became a believer in Jesus and, and they prayed for this person's healing and God provided for the healing of, of that person. I imagine that all they needed for that ministry assignment had been provided by the Lord and that's what they hear reporting and testifying to Jesus about as if he doesn't already know. But you'll see as we keep reading the passage, what we're going to find is that it seems they themselves have failed to learn the lessons taught by their own testimonies. So hear me say this, church. When we testify of the Lord's faithfulness in our life, we not only testify for the sake of those who hear, but we also testify for the sake of ourselves. You see, we testify for the sake of others' encouragement, but also for the sake of our own encouragement. 
This is why when God would perform miraculous acts in the Old Testament, he'd oftentimes tell the people, set up an altar right here and designate it for my worship. Like, yes, it was for his glory. And and yes, it was so that others who passed through would see the altar and know of the Lord's glory. But it was also because those who were beneficiaries of the original miracle, they themselves would pass by again. And every time they did this testimony that the altar stood for, it would grant them a reminder of God's faithfulness to them. And so, friends, when God shows himself faithful to you man, form good habits to to learn from what your testimonies teach, write it down, keep a journal and, and actually look back over it from time to time. And when you spend time with brothers and sisters, tell them, hey, God has been faithful to me in this way. But be rejoicing in your own heart as you tell them about it. And then y'all rejoice in this faithfulness together. When you're discipling someone, make it a habit not to only ask them about their, their fight with sin and their spiritual disciplines, but also ask them the simple question. How have you seen God's faithfulness be manifest as of late? You see, friends, being intentional about these things, it helps us to see our testimonies be used not just for the good and encouragement of others, but also for the good and encouragement of ourselves. Let's not miss the lessons from our own testimonies. The apostles are giving this report to Jesus, likely missing an opportunity to to have a lesson from God's faithfulness be fresh on their minds. And as they report to Jesus, he leads them out to the rural parts of a town called Bethsaida. This is Jesus modeling for us and the disciples that after you've spent yourself in ministry, it's often appropriate to try to find time for withdrawal and, and retreat and refreshment. Uh, But verse 11 tells us that the crowds interrupt Jesus' plans to retreat. And now he's going to model for us that sometimes ministry calls when you least expect it. Uh, We know that by this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has spent about a year and a half in public ministry. Uh, Therefore, the number of people who know of him and his preaching and his miracles, that number is rapidly growing and he's becoming more and more popular by the day. And so this crowd who is wanting to witness Jesus' ministry in action, they found out that he's headed over to Bethsaida. And so they go there as well. Mark's account of this actually tells us that Jesus was in a boat sailing to Bethsaida across the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd ran the distance around the bank of the sea, and some of them actually beat him there. That's how anxious these people were to be in the presence of Jesus. And so when he gets there, they sail up to the bank. The apostles are in the boat with him. The crowd is there on the shore. They're waiting, anticipating his arrival. And Jesus hops out of the boat to begin this seaside ministry. The verse tells us that he welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Beloved, can I just pause to say that we've got a good Savior in Christ Jesus? This is showing us the heart of our Savior toward his people. He's accessible to us. We can go to him and find grace and mercy when we're in need. He doesn't turn us away. He he welcomes us. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He enlightens us with his word, and he doesn't leave us hurting. He provides healing where healing is needed. Like no other religion in the world has a savior like the one we got, friends. When we go to Jesus, we go to a savior who receives our company joyfully, who gives us wisdom freely, and who restores our brokenness abundantly. This is what the people find when they go to Jesus on the shore, because he's a gracious savior, and he came as a gracious shepherd who leads lost people into a life of being found. I don't know about y'all. I know about Candace, but I don't know about the other people in the room, but I am so glad that Jesus welcomes us when we come to him. He welcomes us with open arms, with joy and readiness to intervene in our lives where we need it most. As these people come with great needs and Jesus welcomes them and then he begins intervening. But apparently the apostles think he's intervening too much because we see in verse 12 
that as the day carries on and it gets close to the conclusion of the day, the 12, meaning the 12 apostles who Jesus appointed and took under his wing, they approach and they say to him, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place here. Now the apostles do some things right and they do some things wrong here. What they did right was have a sense of honesty about what was going on. Uh, Luke tells us explicitly, it is late in the day. Well, that phrase in the original language gives indication that this is at or maybe even beyond dinner time. And Mark's gospel tells us that the reason they felt the need to come over here in the first place was because they had been out ministering so much that they hadn't even had time to eat. And so the apostles take liberty and they're honest with Jesus. It's like, hey man, um, <laughs> like ministry is good and, and cool and enjoyable and all, but where's dinner? It's like, when are we going to eat? <laughs> I mean, imagine being one of the apostles. We're told that there was 5,000 men in the crowd. This was during a day of, of patriarchy. Uh, one, one unhelpful blind spot in their culture was that they didn't count women and, and children in their demographic records like these. And so when you add in the women and children, this means that the total could have easily been double the number we see here. There could have been 10,000 people there on the shore waiting. So imagine it. You've been out ministering, you're tired, you're hungry, you finally go to a place where you think you'll get something to eat, but then you get there and there are more than 5,000 people on this shore waiting for you, and Jesus wants to minister to them too. (laughs) So you start to look at the crowd, you're looking at Jesus as your stomach growls, and it's like, wait, um, if he keeps doing this, then we won't be eating. Just say something. And don't look down on the disciples here. Like, I know that some of you get frustrated with me when you don't get to lunch on time because the sermon's too long. <laughs> like, it's not just the disciples here. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, like, hey, you preached too long today, you know what I'm going to say? At least I wasn't like Jesus in Bethsaida. <laughs> 5,000 people. And the ministry went on. There are more than 5,000 people in this crowd, and Jesus is passing through dinner time to minister to them. So the apostles are honest about the lateness of the day, and they're honest about the need for the people to eat. And they were also honest about what the surroundings were like. They say it's late in the day, everybody needs to eat. And then they say, the reason we need to send the people back into town for dinner is because we're in a deserted place here. So they're looking around and and also being honest about the fact that this crowd won't get food unless they go back to town. There's nothing for their needs to be met by. And I just want to pause here, church, to point out that, that there's a valuable lesson we can learn from the disciples here. You see, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the reality of your surroundings. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging the reality of your context. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging your situation and circumstances as they are. And there's a whole school of thought out there that that may suggest the opposite to you, but they're wrong. You see, modern day self-empowerment ideas are going to tell you that difficulty and hard situations are brought about solely because of the way you think. They want to tell you that, that your mind determines the state of everything around you. And now that may be true sometimes, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes difficult situations are difficult because situations are difficult. Even faithful, well-intended Christians, like if if we aren't careful, we can start to think that we shouldn't acknowledge difficulty or challenging situations because doing so would mean that we're unfaithful and we're lacking joy. That's not true. Joy can exist within difficulty and the acknowledgement thereof. Then there's also the prosperity gospelists or, or the hyper-spiritualists who like to religionize everything. 
And they'll want to tell you that, that every difficulty or unfavorable situation is simply a spiritual attack or due to some sin in your life. So what you should do according to them is refuse to call difficulty difficulty and instead start making spiritual declarations that the atmosphere must change. And now hear me out. Spiritual warfare is real. The difficulty might be because of sin. It might be because of a spiritual attack. But it might also be that you're just in a deserted place and you ain't got no food. <laughs> That's an unfavorable situation, and it's okay to say that. Your car ran out of gas because you didn't stop at the gas station. Your engine broke down because you didn't change the oil. Your tire went flat because you ran over a nail. So hear me say this, beloved. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging a difficult situation as long as you also acknowledge who's there with you in the situation. You see, this is where the disciples went wrong. They were right for acknowledging the reality that was before them, but they were wrong for, for forgetting who was there beside them. I read Psalm 23 uh, to start our gathering this morning. And in that song, we're told that even in the, dark, in the darkest valley, God is there with us. We just celebrated Christmas last month. The Christmas season highlights that God, Emmanuel, delights in being God with his people. And so might we, church, as his people, be a people who recognize that no matter what situation or circumstance we walk through, no matter what situation or circumstance we find ourselves in, we're found in it with God there alongside us. But we see the forgetfulness of the apostles show up here because they acknowledge what's before them, but they fail to fully recognize who's there beside them. They're worried that they aren't going to have enough food to feed all of these people. And so Jesus, when, when, when they come to him with this burden, he makes an odd statement to hopefully start opening their eyes to the fullness of the situation. They say, Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can, can go into the villages and the countryside. Like that, that's where they should go and find food. Jesus says, no, 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 you give them something to eat. And then the apostles say, but, but we've only got five loaves and, 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 and two, two fish. Like, like, unless we go buy food for all of these people, we clearly don't have enough to feed them all. You see, they missed what Jesus was really saying to them. When he gave these instructions, you give them something to eat. He wasn't expecting them to rely on ordinary means. You see, what he was doing was, was, was placing the, the, the responsibility back on them so that they would hopefully realize that they had supernatural means to fulfill their responsibility. That statement, you give them something to eat, it highlights their inadequacy, which in turn highlights Jesus's adequacy. Remember, they just come off of this, this missional journey where we can assume they saw God provide and work in big ways. But now God in human flesh is sitting there with them. He has given them an assignment to fulfill, and yet here they are looking into the very face of God, wondering where the provision for a God-given assignment will come from. Somebody needed to tell the apostles what I continually told y'all last week. God provides for the work that he intends to see happen. You know what would have been a better statement for the apostles to, to make when they come to Jesus? Hey, Jesus, how are you going to meet this need? Not let's send the people away like, like, like this deed can't be met. So, so either we have to, to send them away or start thinking about natural things that can be done. But instead, man, I can't wait to see how the God of the universe who works in miracles is about to meet this need. I mean, this is, this is, they're at this body of water. This is the exact same place that just a year and a half earlier, some of them were fishing and Jesus shows up. He tells them where to put their nets and their nets suddenly fill to the point of ripping. <laughs> So they've seen and witnessed and experienced Jesus' work miracles, but in this moment, 
the situation seems to be clouding what they know from experience. And I'm willing to bet that many of us in the room this morning know exactly what that's like. There are many situations that can cloud what we know to be true about God. Financial hardships, family drama and problems, conflict with other people, when you're overwhelmed with responsibilities, economic inflation, like some of us here may be genuinely worried about these recession predictions that are being made. Listen, I can't promise that life won't present you with difficulties, but I can promise that God will be present with you in them and that he's able to work within them. So don't let your circumstances cloud your ability to see and trust God's presence and power. Acknowledge your situation, seek to employ wisdom and navigate the situation well, but do not, please do not forget to pray for miraculous intervention from the one who can actually give it to you. Friends, ask God to intervene in your life because he's powerful enough to do it and he has given an abundance of proof that he is. Like what Jesus does with these loaves makes a statement about what God is able to do generally within the lives of his people. Whenever we see that in the gospels, by the way, when Jesus performs miracles in the Bible, it's him making a statement, I am God on earth. And we know that God has a track record of always working miracles in the lives of his people. Like it has always been this way. I mean, just think back over the pages of scripture and you see where he's continuously working in miraculous ways in his people's lives. Like this, this, this narrative is actually intended to make us flash back to the exodus of the Old Testament. They're here with these fish and loaves, bread and meat. It should bring to mind another time that God provided for his people with, with bread and meat. Back in Numbers chapter 11, right? The people had been there. They were rescued from, from captivity in Egypt, but now they were stuck in this wilderness parallel to the deserted place we see here in Luke's gospel. And God in his grace and provisional power sent a wind that blew quail in from the sea to go along with the manna that he'd been giving them along. So God provided for his people with bread and meat in that wilderness. And here he is in Luke's gospel doing it all over again. He provided for them as he brought them out of captivity once in the Exodus, where this is him in human flesh showing that he can and will continue to provide for his people as he brings them out of captivity to sin. And now if the Exodus or, or, or this feeding of 5,000 people isn't enough, then consider your own salvation. You see, salvation is God saving you and God keeping you by giving you what you need as you seek to live out your salvation. He provided you with, with faith when you had none, and he has multiplied that faith to the point of salvation. He still provides you with sustained holiness and grace and ongoing faith when you ain't got much to offer yourself. And so hear me say this today, Christian. You can trust God because he's got you. And he has always proven himself to keep and sustain those who he's got. I mean, John 6, 39, consider what it says. Jesus himself, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For his Jesus does not lose. What he came here to do, he will finish it in entirety. I mean, just let's, let's check his track record to, to make sure that we're legit in thinking this. He came here to offer his life as a substitution for the lives that we mess up. And you know what he did? He lived without sin and provided a perfect substitute. He came here to face death in the place of we who deserve death because of our transgressions. And you know what he did? He died. He hung on that Roman cross in the place where we belonged. And then he continued to show that he won't lose because he came here to lead the way into resurrection. And even after being dead in the tomb, lifeless, laying there, no pulse, no breath, even after that, friends, because he never loses, he took his life up again. That's what our Savior's done, friends. And now listen to this, though. 
as your life limbos between the period of his resurrection and your own, he's still proven that he does not lose by sustaining your salvation. He's keeping you. He's holding you fast. He brought you out of the wilderness and enslavement to sin, and he's providing for you. He rescued you from captivity, and he's feeding you. He has granted you a glimmer of hope, and he's pushing you toward that hope. Friends, he has declared himself your savior, and he is, without a doubt, saving you. That's what Christ Jesus does, because he does not lose. He didn't lose Israel in the wilderness. He didn't leave this 5,000 in this deserted place with no food. And he won't leave you lost in the wilderness of this world without what you need either. We've got a faithful God who keeps, sustains, and provides for his people now and for all of eternity. And when we experience God's faithfulness, it should bolster within us greater degrees of faith. And remember, I'm not talking about the, the prosperity gospel kind of faith where God is your genie who, who gives you all of the luxurious things that you're asking for. I'm talking about the kind of faith that is measured by belief in an expectation of God's power to work in our lives and ministries for his glory as he wills. So it's about him, his will, his glory. That's what Jesus is, is, is uplifting with the performance of this miracle. He, he feeds these thousands of people so that these thousands will know that the gospel he just preached back up in heaven is a gospel. And so that the apostles would know that the power he gave them to preach this gospel is a power worth wielding. And I just love how he gets the apostles involved in this miracle so that the lesson can be learned thoroughly. Verses 14 to 15 tells us that he had them to organize the people into groups of 50. And then in verse 16, I love this. He takes the minimal loaves and fish that they found, and he decides to use them. Again, I say, church, God can take little and make it become much. He didn't summon a fish from the sea for each of these people. He takes what the apostles have to offer, and he multiplies it. And then he tells them to serve it. Friends, isn't it a beautiful thing that God desires to use us in his work? Like the work of seeing his kingdom be advanced and, and the gospel be spread to the ends of the earth so that more people would come to know him as their creator, redeemer, and savior. Like he doesn't need us to get that done. He can do it all on his own, but he chooses to use us, beloved. And so we should bring whatever we've got, whatever we can, can offer with the Lord, we should bring it and let the Lord do with it as he intends to. So we should tell that person about Jesus, even if we don't feel prepared to answer all of their questions. We should spend that time in the word, even if we don't have but 15 minutes at the start of our day. We should, spend, spend, we, should, we should pay our tithes, even if it's a small amount that we don't think will help much. God can take these minimal investments, friends, and multiply them to the point of yielding maximal fruit. That's what we see him do with these apostles. When he takes these five loaves and two fish, I can just see it. He takes the, the, the loaves and the fish from them. And the crowds are, are sitting in these groups, waiting and wondering what's about to happen. And he looks up to heaven. He prays for the meal. By the way, say a blessing and thank God before you eat your food. I ain't got time to preach that point like I want to, but Jesus models it for us here. Be like Jesus, okay? Say a blessing before you eat your food. After Jesus prays, he breaks the meal. And the second sentence in verse 16 tells us that he kept giving his broken bread and fish to the disciples. He kept giving it. Did y'all notice the change in verbs? Took, past tense. Blessed, past tense. Broke, past tense. Kept giving. Wait, wait, like, like what tense is that? I'm glad y'all asked. 
See, this verb, friends, in the original language is in the imperfect tense. That means in, in, in English, it shows up as what we call a durative word. Durative means that the action continues. And so what am I trying to say to y'all? What I'm trying to say is that the author's words here paint a picture of Jesus literally having those bread and loaves. And he's breaking from them and handing it to the disciples. But as he breaks in hands, it's as if the bread and fish is repairing itself. Let me see if I can bring it full circle for you. When I was growing up, I lived out in the rural parts of town, way out in the country. And there was this one gas station called Top Bait. It was a convenience store where you could, could go and, and, and buy fishing bait and get other convenience store things. Uh, for some reason, old men like to hang out outside the, the, the store and talk about whatever old men talk about. It's like a country club for them. I, I, don't, I don't know why they hung out there, but they did. And sometimes my old man, my granddad, he would take me and my cousin to Top Bait with him, and he let us buy a bunch of candy. So he'd take us to get candy, and, and, and we'd stock up, and then he, he'd drop us back off at my grandma's house, and our day was made. Like we'd have enough candy to eat and, and, and be filled for hours and hours and hours. But here's the thing. Because we were selfish and self-centered, we wanted to make sure that our candy lasted longer than the other cousin's candy. So we do this thing where um, once you started to realize that your candy power was getting a little low, you start to watch your cousin's candy. And once you got real nervous that you might run out before they did, you ask, you ask them this question. It's, it's such a profound question. You look over and you say, how many more you got? <laughs> so how, how many more you got? So you had to ask this question because you knew that if you ran out of candy first, you'd have to sit there and watch your cousin smack on theirs while you didn't have any left. And so you needed to know. How many more you got? How much you got left before you run out? You want to know something, friends? With Jesus, there is no running out. <laughs> Whenever you ask Jesus the question, how many more or how much more you got? The answer is always, I've got more than enough. <laughs> and so he kept giving and kept giving and kept giving of this bread and fish. This, it, it continued to come. And the last two sentences tell us that everyone ate Everyone ate and was filled. And then they picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. You know what I love about those verses? The first is that it shows that there's never any lack with Jesus. <laughs> That's important for us to see there. But the second thing I love about it is that it also shows that Jesus was still putting the lesson, literally, in the hands of the apostles. There were 12 apostles and there were 12 baskets that needed to be picked up in the end. So at the end of this miracle, each of them were left standing there with a tangible message. So hopefully the next time they're presented with a task by Jesus, they remember these baskets that they're holding and they remember that God has empowered them for the work that he has appointed them to. And hopefully church, we'll remember that same thing. You see the apostles here, they almost missed the joy of seeing these people be filled by God because they weren't attuned to the power of God to do it. Like they were ready to send away the very people that Jesus wanted them to minister to. So let's not be like the apostles in this passage, beloved. We believe that God has the power to work through us. We believe that God can take the little we offer and multiply it to yield much fruit. So let's not miss the opportunities when they present themselves. God can take little and make it become much. Let's pray. Father, again, we acknowledge that you are divine miracle worker. You call people from death to life. 
you grant supernatural rescue from a path of eternal damnation to a path of eternal life and hope. And we don't bring anything to the table to see that that happens, God. You do it. And what we thank you that even after giving us this great faith, you continue to grow it and multiply it and foster within us a deeper, ever deepening love for you. You keep and sustain us, God. So we rejoice not only in our salvations this morning, but also in the fact that we're kept by you. And in the fact that your power proves that we don't have to worry about being lost. So we thank you. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.